Venezuela is in the midst of a humanitarian catastrophe. But right now, there's also a discussion in financial capitals about what happens to its $150 billion of debt. Venezuela and its state-owned oil company owe money not only to institutional investors, but also to corporations, and China, and Russia. Creditors have banded into groups, and some hedge funds have even filed lawsuits. In financial markets, things are already happening. This is Alpha Chat, a project from the Financial Times and the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. I'm Colby Smith, and I write for Alphaville. On the sidelines of the IMF spring meetings in Washington, D.C., Brendan Greeley and I sat down with Odette Linnell. Odette is a professor of law at Cornell University and a visiting professor at Yale, and she wrote a book called Restructuring Sovereign Debt. We talked about Mozambique and Argentina and how vulture funds can do some good. We started with something I keep hearing in interviews. Venezuela's debt restructuring will be one of the most complicated in history. Here's Odette. There are a couple things. So one is the political situation. I mean, for one reason, at least as of now, no one knows who they're actually supposed to be negotiating with, right? I mean, that's true of the creditors, and they seem to be, in some cases, trying to negotiate with both sides. Um, that's true of major kind of bilateral um, you know, countries like the US, the EU, um, true of the IMF, who's currently sort of not talking to anyone because they also are not sure who they're supposed to be talking to. So there's a political element that's incredibly complicated. I mean, at this sort of high level, not to even mention the incredibly sad and depressing political element on the ground. Um, and then there's a sort of the the structure of the creditors themselves, right? Um, so this is not a situation in which it's all bondholder debt, right? I mean, um, we have bondholder debt, and that's true for the republic itself, for Venezuela, and also for PDVSA, the Venezuelan oil company, which has a huge amount of debt. And these are two separate sets of obligations legally, though people sort of think of them as together. But then you have um, just sort of commercial creditors, not bondholders, just sort of um, regular commercial creditors. Um, and then we have, of course, the bilateral creditors themselves. Um, these these countries that have lent to Venezuela, especially when it became difficult for Venezuela to actually borrow on the capital markets. And, um, and so these, we know, include Russia and China, but we actually don't really know what is in those loan contracts and haven't been told. So we don't exactly know how much is in there. We don't know um, if these are uh, collateralized, if in the event that uh, Venezuela doesn't pay if they have some claim on assets. Now, we suspect that at least some of them will be. We don't know what additional enforcement mechanisms might be in there. Um, And so that's a difficulty, um, especially because in standard sovereign debt restructurings, you have a group of creditors that are in some ways accustomed to working with each other, right? So the Paris Club creditors, um, the EU, the US, the OECD, um, Russia is also in the Paris Club. Um, China, which we believe has a lot of, of debt in Venezuela, is not a member of the Paris Club. And so it's kind of a, a range of, of difficulties. So if we take a sort of a recent sovereign debt restructuring yeah. that people might be familiar with, Ireland, it's relatively simple. Several Irish banks failed. The Irish state underwrote the banks and then the Irish state needed a bailout. It sounds almost comically simple. And yet yes. it took uh, several months to work out, uh, even within the structures of the IMF and the European Union. And so now you're looking at a country where you've got three axes of complexity. You've got you're not sure who it is that you're negotiating with as a creditor. There are a number of different 
creditors. And uh, there are also a number of different ways that money was lent as a sovereign bond, as a bond to uh, a, a, the oil company that's owned by the state, as a bilateral loan. So it's it's sort of hopelessly more complex than a non-trivial problem like Ireland. Absolutely. I mean, it's gonna it's going to just be a, a mess uh, is, is sort of what people are anticipating now. I mean, we can hopefully make it less of a mess, but I mean, it depends on a whole bunch of people kind of getting together and agreeing in ways that this particular constellation of creditors have not really uh, done previously. And of course, I mean, there's the additional question of the the holdout creditors, which uh, were less present in Ireland, but have been present in other restructurings. On that point, I mean, we, we talk a lot about Argentina as some kind of parallel to Venezuela. And um, I think what's been really interesting about listening to people that were involved in that situation was how quickly it um, you know devolved into an unworkable situation when you had the holdout creditors, the vulture funds coming in and snapping up debt to then litigate to its fullest extent. Is, is there a risk that uh, we could see holdout creditors again here in Venezuela? Um, and, and if so, uh, what lessons can we learn from the Argentina situation? There's a massive risk, and in some ways it's actually potentially more intense, um, in part because I think some range of creditors have learned from the vulture fund strategy in Argentina, right? So these And, these, and what was that strategy, if you could oh, kind yeah. of take us through step by step? Sure, of course. So the standard approach, right, um, at least for bondholder creditors, is a country ends up in distress. And so then they'll say, okay, well, we're in distress. And uh, ideally, they go and actually talk to their creditors and come up with some kind of consensual arrangement. In the Argentina case, uh, they actually didn't end up doing that. They did a unilateral exchange offer where basically they said, look, um, give us your old bonds that we're not paying anyway, and we're going to give you new bonds, new bonds that are going to basically pay at a discount, right? Um, and so there are a range of creditors that did not like that, but ultimately they participated in that restructuring. There were some creditors, though, that decided not to do that. Um, and these particular creditors are uh, vulture funds, you know, so they're sort of a subclass of the distressed debt investor. Um, so distressed debt investors purchase the bonds on the secondary market. So they're not the original lenders, but they're buying from the original lenders, and then then um, sort of the standard distressed debt investor, is, they'll participate in the collective restructuring to sort of maximize their return. So the vulture funds are kind of a subclass within that. Um, and so they're purchasing at a deep discount on the secondary market. But then instead of participating in the restructuring, um, they'll say, you know, forget all you people, you know, suckers participating in the restructuring. We are, that's not for us, right? We're going to separately litigate um, and try to get significantly more money than everyone else. Um, so in some ways, they, you know, they're kind of leeching off the system because the availability of funds depends on everyone else restructuring um, and then they decide to hold out, right? And so these uh, additional creditors have seen the success that those funds had in Argentina. And you can imagine that they're going to be incentivized to do that more in Venezuela. Do you think that's a motivation for why we've seen, I think it's some six or seven lawsuits now from, from various hedge funds hoping to you know, attain a judgment in hopes that that will give them leverage once regime change and restructuring actually occurs? Sure. I, I'm sure that's got to be a factor, right? I mean, I can't remember um, exactly what the profit was from NML, which was the, the primary vulture fund involved in the Argentina mm -hmm. litigation, but it really was- $2 billion or something Yes, like it was that. $2 billion, yeah. but there were some estimates of how much they'd actually invested, and I can't remember mm -hmm. what that 
what right. that proportion was, but it was significant. I mean, so you can imagine if you're interested in that kind of thing, you want to do this. And in some ways, it's actually potentially easier um, for these vulture funds than in the Argentina case, because in the Argentina case, they didn't have as many assets in the U.S. And a lot of the Venezuelan oil is exported to the U.S., right? And so it's running around on oil tankers, right, all over the high seas, not to mention that um, Citgo, right, this mm -hmm. gas station that probably all of you and certainly I have gone and filled up my my gas tank is uh, is sort of owned through a range of mm -hmm. companies by PDVSA, by the oil company. So there there are assets in the U.S. much more easily available for recovery than, for example, the naval ship that they mm -hmm. tried to go after mm -hmm. in the Argentina right. case, which is right. a little like out there, you know. And uh, we've seen um, you know, proposals uh, from certain uh, lawyers or uh, advisors and, and other professors even mm -hmm. um, as to how to deal with this asset seizure problem. And and one that's gained um, some attention has been this executive order. So uh, in similar situation with the Iraq case um, where you had the UN Security Council ring fencing Iraqi assets mm -hmm. so that creditors couldn't seize them, there's been you know a suggestion that the the U.S. government could kind of issue some executive order in the same vein. Do you think that that is an effective, you know, solution to deal with assets? And is there a risk that, uh, you know, by imposing this top-down restriction on creditors, that the ability for Venezuela to then again return to capital markets is compromised? So. No, I, I don't think that that's likely to happen. So if something like this were to happen, um, which is not, I think, a sure thing, and my understanding is that, you know, there's uncertainty about this in the administration to the extent that they're thinking about this. But that shouldn't be a problem because remember, the whole point is to impose this, um, basically render the Venezuelan assets immune from uh, from attachment. So you, you could get your judgment, but you couldn't actually then claim it. Um, but the whole point is basically to make that strategy unavailable to vulture funds with the intention of protecting all of the other creditors, right? And so remember, all of the other creditors are generally going to be the creditors that are interested in the markets in the future, right? So, um, so in some ways, it is it's sort of, in my view, a kind of less than ideal situation if given the absence of a, something like a sovereign bankruptcy regime to try to put a stay on this kind of creditor litigation with the intention of actually helping the consensual restructuring, which in the long run actually should enhance Venezuela's capacity to get back on the markets. One of the ways in which international finance has changed, even over the last five years, uh, is the arrival of Chinese investment money, uh, bilateral loans from China, also from Russia, um, taking over some of the traditional functions of the IMF and the World Bank. You said something interesting, which is uh, earlier today, which is that uh, there are going to be some inexperienced creditors when we try to sort this mess out. Are they going to be incented to cooperate politically? Do they have enough of a stake that they're going to be incented to be? Uh, is this going to be even more difficult politically than it is financially? It could be. Um, maybe inexperience is not quite the right word. They have a lot of experience in doing this. But in this particular kind of restructuring, they haven't been as involved, um, especially as a major player, which we think, though honestly we don't really know, um, they could be in this situation. Um, but I think the political dimension is important. And I think I'm worried about how things have been going on the political front a little bit, precisely because of this reason, right? Um, to the extent that in any future setting, regardless of how it looks politically, you're going to need the involvement of the Chinese government and also the Russian government. If we're moving in a political direction in which we're alienating them and 
disrespecting their allies within Venezuela, that could make an eventual restructuring that much more difficult. Now, we don't know exactly how that works, but it's a situation that would take some diplomacy and some delicacy. And frankly, I'm not feeling very confident on that front looking at our current governmental authorities in the U.S. So when the, um, you know, the diplomatic tensions or the diplomatic dynamics meet with the the legal ones, has there ever been situations where uh, the the diplomatic uh, side kind of trumps the legal side? So, for instance, with some of these hedge funds that have gone out and gotten lawsuits um, or have gotten judgments, is there this chance that because the U.S. government seems to have so much on the line here in Venezuela, it has is gone out and it, it's backed the opposition government? Um, it is explicitly said that it's behind um, the, the this regime change. Is there, is there a chance that the legal end of that uh, is is becomes of secondary importance then to the political side? Sure. Um, you know, I, th- I think you don't want to say it's an either or, but I think you definitely want to think about the legal as embedded within the political and also the political as potentially shaping what's happening in the legal. So I think that's true. There are circumstances, I mean, and you mentioned the Iraq case, and I think that's a good example, where notwithstanding the underlying legal situation, the existence of these contracts, and in that case, um, the fact that no one had agreed that a regime change, even from a dictatorial to, I don't know if we could say democratic-ish mm-hmm. regime, should make a difference. The fact that the U.S. government was so deeply involved, and maybe is an understatement of their involvement in Iraq, um, and was bringing in all of their allies, definitely impacted the, the restructuring and the outcome. In the past, there's always been an argument with every restructuring whether the, uh, whether the country is illiquid or insolvent. Right. The country says we're just illiquid, and it becomes pretty clear that they're insolvent. It seems like with Venezuela, we're dealing with a third case, which is that the state is neither illiquid nor insolvent. It's mm-hmm. failed, right. <laughs> which is a, which is an order of complexity beyond either of those. Um, is that the right distinction to draw? And what's a precedent for any restructuring of a failed state? That's a very good question. I mean, so yes, I think, you know, how exactly do you value the assets like oil in in the ground, especially because it's actually kind of difficult and expensive to get out. I mean, people think that Venezuela has the largest oil reserves in the world, but it's not, you know, just sitting up there easy to get. Um, uh, And so on that basis, there are a range of creditors that are still, you know, counting on the eventual oil coming out. Um, But I think you're right that it kind of falls in between. And I think ultimately it is a failed state situation. Um, and I mean, it's just a massive humanitarian crisis. And regardless of whether we eventually want to talk about liquidity or solvency in a country case, we have to first rebuild the institutions of the country or allow the country to rebuild its own institutions uh, to then figure out, well, h- how actually do you access the assets that would that would kind of speak to that question in a way? Yeah. So in a way, it's hard to compare to Argentina because oh, yeah. Argentina was and remains a state, a functioning state. For sure, right. The default, the 2001 default resulted from sort of massive political and economic crisis um, and sort of an incredibly serious depression, but not the kind of constitutional crisis that we're seeing in Venezuela right now, um, which is incredibly difficult, certainly for the Venezuelans and also for people looking in and thinking about what actually is the best way to you know, support Venezuela economically and also to support the self-determination of, of Venezuela's people to the extent that you're concerned about because it's not entirely clear exactly what that would mean, uh, regardless of what both sides are claiming. 
The notion of Venezuela as a failed state brings to mind the, the concept of odious debts. So debts that are seen as illegitimate because they were incurred by a fallen regime or um, without you know authorization or for purposes that didn't benefit the people. Mm-hmm. Odious debts as a legal concept hasn't ever really been tested. So could you make the case for their relevance uh, in Venezuela? I'm, I would be worried about thinking of something like regime change in quite the same way as we've seen these massive regime changes in other situations, right? I mean, a clear instance of something like regime change would be something like Iraq or, um, you know, one of the historical examples of an idea like odious debt would be like the Soviet repudiation of czarist debt, right? Um, And so this seems to me kind of an intermediate case where it's not a massive regime change in quite the same way. It's certainly a constitutional crisis. And as part of the constitutional crisis, there's potentially arguments that some range of the debt was incurred potentially in violation of the underlying laws, right? And so that's kind of akin to ideas of odious debt, but not going quite all the way. But, you know, as you point out, it hasn't in general been accepted as a a doctrine in international law. That's not to say that it has no power, I think. I mean, I think to the extent that you have people, civil society groups, external to the country, also internal to the country, pointing out the the deep irregularities of a debt or highlighting how the debt did not really um, benefit the underlying population, then it seems to me like that could at least shape both what creditors are maybe willing to restructure, right, or the types of arguments that are made, certainly in a Paris Club type context, maybe in a commercial creditor context. Um, and also potentially, I think it could impact the degree to which a haircut, right? A cutting down of the debt actually has a reputational consequence in the capital markets, right? Because you could imagine that, okay, well, we got a 50% haircut, but actually the circumstances, even if no one wanted to say it straight up, are such that it's kind of reasonable and we shouldn't necessarily assume that this reflects on what the country would be willing to do in the future. The argument would be, we, the Venezuelans, didn't give you a haircut. Chavez Maduro gave you a haircut. Something along those lines, right? And so even if it doesn't track specifically onto the legal doctrine, if that set of arguments were made and they were compelling, right, um, to the creditors listening to them, then you can imagine, and it's hard to sort of figure out exactly what the baseline is here, that in the event that Venezuela does return to the markets and is trying to issue bonds, that they end up potentially getting a better deal than they would in the absence of this type of argument. But to make that case, you're essentially making a political argument in order to lower your cost of debt, because what you're saying is every element of the political ideology of Chavez and Maduro has been repudiated. It's not there anymore. We've built a new society. And therefore, you're not looking at those risks. You're looking at the risks of a completely different country. So this is that's why that would be the the classic odious debt argument, right? Um, And why I think I'm not 100% sure it applies quite as clearly. But yeah, but it would be something along those lines. So um, you wrote a paper. I'm writing a paper. You're writing a paper. <laughs> we, we, we have looked at a draft of a paper um, about the utility of vulture funds, uh, which is an argument that neither of us had heard before that, uh, you know, we call them vultures. Uh, they certainly don't call themselves vulture funds. But like actual literal vultures, your point is they play a valuable role in the ecosystem of debt restructuring. Help us understand that. 
Yeah, or at least they can. Um, and I'm not the only one that's that's saying this, but I'm kind of interested in so in one of the in the paper that you're referring to. I'm looking at this kind of subset of vulture fund litigation that hasn't really been discussed very much, which is vulture funds. Uh, one of the things they're trying to do, right, when they're collecting on their debt, is they're trying to figure out, okay, where are the assets of the sovereign state, wherever they are, whether it's a ship or a launch contract with SpaceX or whatever, right? I'm going to try to get it. And so one of the assets that they've tried to identify and characterize as sovereign assets are assets that have been claimed as personal or private assets by the officials of the countries themselves, right? Um, and it could be to sort of hide the assets away so creditors can't collect them, but potentially as part of that, and sometimes even more explicitly, they're just taking the money for themselves, right? Um, and so they're sovereign assets that through exercise of corruption, basically, have become um, you know, sequestered and illegitimately privatized, right? And so in general, people are not looking at this, but the vulture funds in a couple cases have figured out through kind of impressive detective work, actually, sometimes also just reading journalism very closely um, in the countries themselves, right? So it's been uncovered by, by journalists um, saying, wait a second, these accounts are generally shell corporations because that's how a lot of this hidden wealth is hidden these days. Um, these shell corporations that you are claiming are private entities that have nothing to do with the state, in fact, are just vehicles for siphoning away the assets of the state. And so as part of this, they're trying to take this money back for themselves, right? So they're still trying to basically enrich themselves, but they have this positive externality, this benefit, right, of exposing corruption that otherwise is going, um, is, is hidden. Um, and, you know, there are a range of efforts global efforts, and I'm thinking of something like the World Bank Stolen Asset Recovery Initiative that try to do something like this, that are doing kind of asset recovery and ideally sending the money back to the, the states themselves. But sometimes they haven't been as successful in part because they require the cooperation of the state that's recovering the assets. And frankly, sometimes the ruling elites are all interconnected. So even if you've had an, a change in administration, they're still a little wary of, well, maybe we don't want to go all the way down that route. Um, the vulture funds don't have that conflict of interest, uh, so to speak. Um, and so they have this sort of pure interest in finding the money and therefore uncover corruption. They perform a role a little bit like short sellers in stock markets, which they also do not have the purest of interest, right? They have an incentive to make sure that the company looks bad and that things are uncovered. But that, that also often causes them or drives them to uncover very interesting and unsavory things about companies. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, I think the trick is then to see if there are other ways in which this could be done that don't strengthen the vulture funds themselves, right? I mean, that's because, because I mean, one, one thing that you could say, and, um, you know, this is something that actually has been said, I don't know how seriously, by people just looking at the asset recovery side and frustrated with the lack of success in the global asset recovery regime, well, maybe we should just do something like a private attorney general type thing or a, where you basically deputize a private actor to try to do something that is arguably a public function. Um, and the problem with that is that it's building a proposal on the asset recovery side, which is not a bad proposal, arguably, on a really problematic sovereign debt restructuring foundation, right? Um, and so building that that proposal on one side is, is arguably to strengthen the set of restructuring problems that we're trying to deal with on the sovereign debt side. So you kind of have to, I think, look at both sides simultaneously, right? The two sides of the transnational flows of capital. Do you see the structure that we're talking about where uh, you've got assets of the state and then you've got assets of people who have declared themselves to be the state? Um, do you see going after the assets of the Maduro family uh, being a part of this restructuring that we're talking about with Venezuela? 
Sure. I mean, to the extent that you have holdouts incredibly active, right, I would certainly think that some of them are going to take the playbook that they've taken in a couple other cases. And I'm thinking here of, of Congo Brazzaville and also of Argentina, which is sort of a less discussed aspect of the many, many pages of Argentina litigation. So taking this playbook of trying to go after these ostensibly personal but actually public assets um, and, you know, translating that potentially into the into the Venezuela context, right? To the extent that there has been a lot of corruption, which everyone seems to agree there has been, this could be another place where they're going to look for assets. So in your most recent paper, you you discuss the notion that we're in this heyday of vulture funds. Yeah. And you know, the larger problem here is the fact that there isn't really a standardized process to kind of handle sovereign bankruptcies. So in this scenario where we can see, you know, value perhaps of vulture funds, uh, do you think that's kind of delaying the process to come up with a more credible and standardized process to deal with restructurings going forward? I don't think that the possible benefit from vulture funds is delaying. I mean, there are a range of reasons that people are not going after um, a sovereign bankruptcy regime. I'm hoping that that eventually changes, if not a full-fledged, you know, all the bells and whistles sovereign bankruptcy regime, some kind of, you know, um, uh, effort heading in that direction to put in place, for example, a global stop to this kind of holdout creditor litigation, right? You could do kind of certain sub-mechanisms um, along those lines. But yeah, I mean, I think that ideally you want to move in that direction in part to deal with the vulture fund litigation. Now, it's not that frequent, though it seems, I mean, looking at the Venezuela situation, maybe it will start becoming more frequent given the success of the Argentina example. Um, but even if it's not that frequent, I think it's a problem because when it happens, it can severely delay uh, the success of the restructuring. It can disincentivize other creditors from participating in the restructuring. And then even once you've actually had a, a restructuring go through, to the extent that you have ongoing vulture fund litigation and debts outstanding and unpaid, you can hinder the return of the country to, to capital markets and the growth of the country itself. I mean, that's part of what we see in the Argentina situation, where they actually had a restructuring go through that the vast majority of creditors agreed to. But this ongoing litigation meant that they still were stuck in this, this limbo. So what's preventing us from moving in this direction to a more established regime to handle restructuring? Well, it's just an incredibly politically difficult thing. So probably the best known effort thus far was uh, the IMF's effort in 2002-2003 to set up a sovereign debt restructuring mechanism. Um, and this was in part in response to an earlier uh, set of successes in vulture fund litigation. And they said, wait a second, this holdout problem could be a serious issue, which they were right about. Um, and UNCTAD, actually, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, a couple years before that, had also identified this problem and proposed something. Um, but they ended up not getting the support they needed. And that was for a couple reasons. Um, well, the primary reason was that the U.S. Treasury, which initially seemed like maybe they were going to be into it, decided that they weren't. The European countries, there were some that were more supportive, some that were less supportive. Among the borrower countries themselves, there was also a split, right? Because there were some borrower countries that said this would actually be incredibly helpful for us. There was another range of borrower countries that 
sort of basically it seemed decided that they could do without. They were concerned about a potential increase in borrowing costs. And also some of those borrower countries. They were concerned that borrowing costs would actually reflect the risk. Yes, exactly. The risk of a sovereign <laughs> bankruptcy, which is, you know, which is fine. But on the other hand, I mean, we have a we have a bankruptcy regime in the in the domestic context that doesn't seem mm-hmm. to have actually raised borrowing costs that significantly. I mean, this is always the argument against bankruptcy. It's like, well, you can't have a bankruptcy regime because it's going to massively increase borrowing costs. And doesn't ever really seem to happen. Well, I mean, the, the background to this, which seems to be driving incentives for a bunch of different actors, is that there is a flood of capital yes. available in yes. the world looking for a return. Right. So it is impossible to discourage people from buying sovereign debt or making these bilateral sovereign loans because because everybody's looking for some kind of a return. And the returns from Venezuela are a little more exciting than they are in U.S. Treasuries right now. So in in a way, there's very little that you can do to encourage anyone to come up with a more coherent process. Right. Uh, Well, I mean, maybe you'd say there's so much lending to the extent that a sovereign bankruptcy regime would cool it down a little. Maybe that would actually be another good thing, right? I mean, um, but no, I think think it's true that people feel mixed about it, continue to feel mixed about it. There are additional calls for it. But I mean, you know, back in the day in the 2002, 2003, some countries were into it. Other countries decided, worried about borrowing costs. And honestly, they also decided they were economically, systemically important enough that if they really, if things really started to fall apart, someone's going to come to the rescue for them. And they're probably not wrong. I mean, thinking of like a country like Mexico coming off of the massive kind of U.S. Treasury-backed intervention assistance in the late 1990s, mid to late 1990s, right, when they were having, uh, you know, a crisis. And they were right that, you know, the U.S. decided they were systemically important enough that they were going to organize something that ended up basically helping them out. So this is familiar to all of us from the from the financial crisis in the U.S., which is that and even the aftermath, the attempt to prevent another financial crisis, it became clear that large banks were not willing to come up with an actual insurance into which they'd pay a premium to why handle bother? this in the future because why bother because yes. they were there they knew that they were too big to not be rescued and in the same way there are countries that know that they're too big to not be rescued very similar dynamic we've been talking a lot about venezuela but in a way it seems unique because nicolas maduro is uniquely bad but sovereign restructurings do come in waves what will cause the next wave well you know it's hard to predict right i mean the imf i think was it yesterday just basically downgraded their economic growth forecasts to the lowest rates that we've seen since the financial crisis right so that's a kind of broad global thing that's happening you know i think after 2008 you have a series of mergers and acquisitions at a global level that to some degree is integrating um, financial institutions in a way that maybe is going to increase systemic risk going forward you have a little bit of the softening or rollback of certain financial regulations that were put in place and that could have an impact i think that one of the things that we want to pay attention to is the increased risk that's brought about by natural disasters, which seem to be happening with greater frequency, and the general dislocation that might be resulting sort of in coming decades from climate change, right? I mean, I think that that is incredibly uh, difficult and risk-exacerbating factor. And I think with risk culture in finance, people tend to think in terms of cycles because they've all lived through a couple of cycles or they've read about a couple of cycles. And what scares me about that risk is that it is just brand spanking new and that nobody in finance has any uh, any understanding of it. Very few companies outside of reinsurers who are going to have to bear these costs are willing to even admit that it's happening. Um, and so there's just no protections around it, no thought about it. And when it really starts happening, uh, you could argue that it already has, 
it's going to be a surprise in a way that it shouldn't because it's it's a new non-cyclical risk. Exactly. I think that's absolutely right. It's highly predictable as a general global matter, but for any individual country trying to think about its risk profile and how to manage it going forward, it's it can be difficult to actually determine what's I mean, there are ways you can potentially mitigate that, right, sort of building into loan contracts, things like contingency clauses, right, um, where repayment is pegged to commodity prices, right, major export commodity prices or pegged to GDP. Um, and you can build in contingency clauses, including sort of natural disaster contingency clauses where there's an automatic uh, stay on litigation and, a, you know, something like that, but doesn't trigger cross. You, know, you, you can draft them in various ways, but that doesn't deal with the fact that this is still out there and is going to impact both the capacity to make any debt payments and also massively potentially increase the need for financing and assistance. Yeah, and it's a little bit like terrorism insurance in that for a long time, it was completely free. It was just thrown into the contract. And then suddenly one day it wasn't free anymore. Yeah. Exactly. What is the country that you see most exposed to this combination of financial instability and natural uh, natural catastrophe risk? Most exposed? I don't think I can do that one. The, well, the combination. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was, I was thinking. We, yeah. If we think about Mozambique, I mean, they oh, have well, a very uniquely difficult kind of debt restructuring yes, process. Sure. And then uh, when uh, the cyclone hit, it just made everything exponentially worse. Oh, for sure. I thought you were projecting forward. I was like, I don't know if I can go forward. But yes, for sure. For sure. <laughs> Mozambique. Right. I mean, right. Absolutely. The sort of financial difficulties that they've been in, in part because of these loans that, you know, thinking about odious or illegitimate loans, mm. like that's a that's a poster child for it. And then, of course, this uh, Cyclonita, right? I mean, Puerto Rico is another it. example. It's yeah. not sovereign debt. It's no, municipal absolutely. debt. But it's, it's the exact same dynamic where they were already in a precarious situation and then all of a sudden they're devastated. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, those two examples, right? So beyond this, uh, you know, climate change risk that we're talking about and and the holdout creditors, it seems as though debt restructurings are set to get a lot more complicated going forward. I think they could be. I mean, it's possible that, you know, we start by talking about Venezuela. And because of the incredible resource riches of Venezuela, there is a lot of creditor interest and a lot of different types of contracts, maybe more so than in some other locations. Um, but I think it's possible that that is a model for things that we might be seeing in the future. But it's, it's kind of hard to, to know exactly and to do that mapping, I think, really well. All right. Well, thank you very much. Oh, Appreciate thanks it. so much. Yeah, it was thank fun. you. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance and Amy Keene from the Financial Times. Please email alphachat at ft.com for any reason at all. For my part, I'm going to pay more attention to climate change and the impact on sovereign debt. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.